Always already and welcome to Always Already Podcast. I'm Rachel. I'm John. And this is B. And we're here today to talk about Chakrabarti's The Climate of History, Four Theses, as well as po- Post-Coloniality and the Artifice of History, which is actually rather perfect because yesterday was our 300,000 person, 400,000 400, 400, yeah. person plus climate march in New York City. That was great. That was yeah. great. I and wasn't the, able to attend. I'm sorry, guys. We didn't organize it. It was horizontally organized. Oh, okay. But it wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> it actually wasn't at all. Um, <laughs> and then today was Flood Wall Street, um, which was very cool. I got to go for a little bit, and it was trying to kind of connect capitalism and climate change in a public space, which actually is exactly what Chakrabarty talks about. Yes, we'll get into that. But before we do that, we need to acknowledge the three of us. So as you may have noticed over the past several episodes, there may have been some audio problems. None of us know anything about a sound engineering, so our solution... And our mics cost $30 yeah. total, all three. So if you want to be a benefactor to the Always Already Podcast, uh, send us an email. Yeah. Alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. But in the meantime, we all are at the moment uh, sharing one microphone. So if we're extra giggly, that might be why, because we've all ended up jointly <laughs> making out, all trying to go and say something into the microphone at yes. the same time. It's going to be awkward but fun at the same time, yes. Perfect. So before we, uh, on that note, we're going to have this here little summary of the Chakrabari that we read, and then we'll be back to talk about it. So I'm going to be walking you through uh, Deepesh Chakrabari's uh, The Climate of History, Four Theses, um, in summary, and um, I'll sort of... Uh, take us uh, a little bit step-by-step through the four theses um, and provide a little bit of an overview um, for the way that our discussion on today's podcast is going to happen. So the first thesis has to do with how we conceive of Anthropocene climate change and as it suggests the collapse of what uh, Chakrabarti is calling the humanist natural and human history paradigm. So on the one hand, we can no longer claim that there is a natural history separate and thus um, only accessible via, say, um, a knowledge, uh, you know, at the level of God. Um, and there is only a human history of political and social institutions that we can utilize reason for that, in fact, there must be a collapse between these two modalities, um, but also in one sense it creates a false dichotomy. Given the effect um, of climate change um, as being human-centered or Anthropocene, um, human-caused, we have to think about things as being co-imbricated, right? Uh, Co-extensive, we um, in fact have as much to do with the ways in which nature is shaping, if we call and um, if we were to separate it out, nature shaping itself um, as we shape our own social um, and political institutions. Uh, the se- second thesis uh, deals specifically with um, establishing us, and throughout Chakrabarti really does this, but the second, second thesis deals specifically with establishing us as geological agents and calling on us to use reason and science um, to help us determine our coexistence with nature as a human species. 
Um, now, although throughout the piece, um, Chakrabarty is building up these notions of human as species, but trying to be anti-essentialist about it. So we think of ourselves as a human species within nature, being coextensive with nature, then it provides us with um, a agential force, what he's calling geological agency, um, through recourse to, on the one hand, instrumentalizing something that's been around since the Enlightenment, reason, um, through the institution of science, to determine how um, we are to interact with nature, um, but also how uh, we are to shape our future. Right? Um, the third thesis deals with um, putting capitalism and its history in conversation with, again, revisiting this idea of humans as species um, and as geological agents and having that be in conversation with one another, right? The history of capitalism, the history of humans as geological agents must necessarily be um, in conversation. Um, and given how capital has expanded, given how uh, industrialization over time um, uh, has, you know, caused in many instances um, the greatest increases of um, what we see as, you know, carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere, etc., um, it must necessarily be taken up. And the fourth thesis um, deals with how climate change forces us to, quote, probe the limits of our historical understanding. And here, and uh, and I think, again, throughout the piece, but here specifically, uh, Chakrabarty is attempting to deconstruct the ways even we have a theory of history um, and how we as human beings are positioned within that history. And so there's a quote towards the end of the piece that does this uh, nice summary of um, what this um, fourth thesis um, means. Climate change poses for us a question of a human collectivity and us. It goes on to say, it calls for a global approach to politics without the myth of a global identity. I think this fourth thesis brings together um, each of the uh, three preceding theses about how we, um, as a species, how we as humans, uh, are not essentialized by the term species, but rather how we become agents of uh, geological change for the better, and how we can reimagine ourselves um, as being coextensive with nature. So we're back, and in that short little break, B insulted me, and I feel very bad. And this comes like roughly an hour after he tried to mansplain to one of our friends. I did not try to mansplain anything. You intimated to that you were about to mansplain. You a little was, bit were mansplaining. Okay, first of all, I am in love with Bruno Latour, as everyone knows on the show, <laughs> and I just made a comment that even though I'm not able to attend tonight's session at Columbia University. Um, because I he was going to, to explain the talk to someone was, who was actually going. So sometimes it bears like explaining. It, sometimes it bears explaining. What Rachel Latour was there. Is talking microaggression. About, right? We'll just call it a microaggression. <gasps> and I am not there. engaging in microaggression. And B either. is the one who is 
presumably the most epistemically <sighs> just of us all. All right, when it comes to Latour, I feel particularly protective and covetous, and sometimes the epistemic privilege I feel when it comes to Latour comes out in really negative ways, so I apologize. I might have mansplained a little bit earlier, so yes. Okay, so we're now ready to talk about Chakrabarty, where hopefully we won't mansplain. So I'm gonna, no I'm gonna do no splaining woman or man uh, alike, because... Um, Oh, my hands are covering the microphone, so now I'm back. Um, so why don't we start by talking about this connection between capitalism and climate. When I was at Wall Street this morning, it was really interesting, people trying to parse it out um, and show the connection between, um, it's, it's actually something that Chakrabarty brings up, which is this idea that with capitalism, there's still a life float for the, the rich, for the 1%. With something like climate change, there's no such thing. And, and also one could say, you know, the, what's the connection? And, in one sentence, it's um, the investments that Wall Street puts in fossil fuels and the um, the profits it makes off of fossil mm -hmm. fuels. But then I think Chakrabarty problematizes this connection in a lot of ways. Yes, it extends beyond just mere connections, right, between investments and in fossil fuels and the like, right? Expanding at least to networks that are formed from these kinds of investments, right? So. So I have a self-evident question I'd like to pose, which is how is capitalism and climate change not uh, connected? How are they not co-imbricated? How can you make an argument that they are not simultaneously, um, like I said? I think the question is not whether they're connected or not. It's whether or not one could say capitalism is the sole cause and foundation of something like climate change, which itself is part of a much larger warming of the earth. And I mean, one of the ways that Chakrabarty poses the question is in a way that says, all right, we can all recognize that, you know, capitalism and climate change are connected, right? And it's, you know, industrialization, you know, that is, you know, a precursor or prerequisite for something like the Anthropocene, right? Where humans become a geological force. And it's only with the advent of industrial capitalism that that even, you know, that industrial capitalism is a condition of possibility for something like the Anthropocene, mm -hmm. right? And then we can also acknowledge that there are uneven um, inputs to that generate climate change, right? Richer, com richer countries or uh, developing countries or industrializing countries are necessarily going to contribute more to anthropogenic climate change, right? Mm -hmm. So then the question, one of the questions that Chakrabarty poses in this piece, this is particularly the climate of history piece, is, you know, so we then get into these debates. So do, do you know, do, does China say, <clears throat> well, it's the richer countries that have already industrialized that <clears throat> they need to bear the brunt of the costs right. or they need to take the actions or do the does the US and you know Western Europe say no actually you're you know and I just saw something today that now China is fine is you know uh, now ahead of most Western European countries in terms of per capita emissions which is a relatively new phenomenon obviously on an aggregate scale it's yeah. a large emitter um, so then they say well no now you're polluting the most so it's up to you mm -hmm. to do it so the mm -hmm. capitalism I think one of the things that Chakrabarty is talking about is the way that capitalism in some ways is imbricated in the way that we assign blame and thus right. responsibility for addressing climate change mm -hmm. when right. and then that rubs up against and for him in this piece you know it rubs up obviously against something like post-colonial critique or you know post-colonial accounts of capital formation or imperialism or something like that and at the same time rubs up against the fact that 
climate change situates humanity as a species, mm -hmm. right? As some kind of universal, and we'll get into later what kind of universal that is or may be or may not be. Which is the but first universal that I'm not going to over overly reject yeah, in this podcast. I think so yeah. too. But speaking of species, I mean, I think that that's another, such an interesting connection between capitalism and um, climate change and what he calls deep history or mm -hmm. looking at history um, that spans back far longer than written history, than industrialization, than typical parts of history associated with capitalism, than, you know, agrarian revolution. And um, this idea of species, of course, conjures Marx. And he talks about Marx in his piece, but not directly in terms mm -hmm. of species and alienation of the species, mm -hmm. the species being. Yeah. And so I thought that that was an interesting piece that wasn't as drawn out, but this idea of if we think about the species and kind of solidarity of the species, which entails looking I'll back a lot farther than written history. To what extent does that sort of imply an unalienation or a place for solidarity that's kind of moving away from a species being, the alienation within capitalism of the species being? That's really fascinating, especially when we like look at something like the Climate March yesterday, which you know, multiple commentators remarked upon, and I noticed when I was there, and like talking with other people who have been there, is that like it was, you know, perhaps more so for me personally than any sort of, you know, march or demonstration that I can ever remember, right? It was the most diverse. There were the most different kinds of people there in that march yesterday than any sort of action like that I've ever been to. Um, so in that sense, you know, yesterday was one demonstration of how, you know, it cuts across lines of class or of gender, of nice. age. It cuts across migrate, you know, uh, status and citizenship or not. It cuts across so many different um, categories or markers of identity or however we want to frame those things is that at least in the, um, you know, at least in the sense of, yesterday's response to something like climate change, maybe that's some sort of, you know, on the ground, you know, practical manifestation of something like the way that there's at least the potential for climate change to not only be something that affects humans as the species, but mobilizes humans as, as species. Too. But see, that's what, so I don't know, can we simultaneously worry that if we think about these things in terms of the species that we're, uh, we're completely erasing difference, yes. we're completely getting away from how Definitely. difference should be a, a part of this kind of conversation conversation that we're continuing to have yes right and and I, I suppose like the other thing would be as someone who struggles with Marx's concept of the species being um, I'm not exactly sure exactly what species being ultimately uh, talk to me in six months right and theoretically so, so we I should have an idea get it. Um, yeah, so my, my concern would be to think about, it, does, it feels like this one big hug, right, that climate change is somehow yeah. going to bring us together in this solidary way. And although I, I completely agree that it should, at least in terms of our, our willingness to change policy in a direction that's going to protect the longevity um, of, well, I mean, the species, as it were, um, in what ways is this going to be imbricated in um, and I think, you know, part of this piece is in what ways is that longevity going to be imbricated in our own, you know, how we produce or how we consume and, you know, how do we overlook the fact that the, these consumptive um, practices are different across various post-colonial cultures, Not right? only that, but on a more abstract level, you know, he says 
you know, he poses the problem of how do we hold on to the fact that climate change imbricates us as a species with a deep history like Rachel was right. talking about? And how do we have both that and something like the post-colonial critique of humanity, right. of the abstract individual? So if you'll allow me to read um, from the Climate of History piece, this is on page 219. And he says, but the knowledge in question is the knowledge of human as a species, a species dependent on other species for its own existence, a part of the general history of life. And if we skip down a little bit, he says, at the same time, the story of capital, the contingent history of our falling into the Anthropocene cannot be denied by recourse to the idea of species. For the Anthropocene would not have been possible even as a theory without the history of industrialization. Mm -hmm. How do we hold the two together as we think the history of the world since the Enlightenment? How do we relate to a universal history of life, to universal thought that is, while retaining what is of obvious value in our post-colonial suspicion of the universal. The crisis of climate change calls for yeah. thinking simultaneously on both registers yeah. to mix together the immiscible chronologies of capital and species history. But I think that's also kind of brilliant because mm -hmm. it's it goes back to this idea of contradiction. Like we're scared of contradiction mm. as activists in a way, right? Like we need to all either think in this realm or this realm, but it's like, maybe it's completely reasonable and well reasonable is the wrong word but maybe it's not counterintuitive that we think in both well ways. i mean possessing so simultaneously possessing a contradiction might not be problematic unless you're talking about practice right and so i think on some level if we're thinking about practice in such a way as to you know if yesterday represented practice as like a way uh, in which you know the mass production of activism and what it looks like with 400,000 plus people in the street, um, you know, how does that, or at least how, how does his perspective on taking these two things simultaneously work itself out as a method? How does, mm -hmm. and, and look, and I am very skeptical of, you know, claims to, you know, kind of a default well, if it's not methodologically sound, then we have to throw the theory away. Um, but I do think that on some level, this requires a method. This requires a think about practice this or praxis, right? This requires us to think um, in ways that suggest that, yeah, contradictions can be held simultaneously, but what does that look like when we take to the streets or what does that look like when we think about ourselves as imbricated within species under capitalism and, and industrialization. Well, also imbricated in the fact that we live in the U.S. and yes. participate in capitalist circuits and processes and things like that and those other sorts of things Absolutely. as well. But I think like I think yesterday, though, there were so many visible accounts of that. I had one friend on Facebook who, po who posted, I'm so pissed that there wasn't a cat contingent. Mm -hmm. Which maybe used to also. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was, there should always be a cat contingent. It's every, kind of brilliant. There were plenty of pups for climate justice. Oh. There were lots of cute dogs. At oh the march yesterday. But right. I think you know there were a lot of people organizing with various groups, various whatever identity groups, subjectivity groups, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, um, and you know organizing around let's say domestic workers' rights or religiously affiliated social activist groups or whatever it is. And at the same time, it was all under the guise, not the guise, the banner of climate change. Mm -hmm. And I think in a way it's like a taking, I mean, you know, part of it was corporately sponsored and there's problems, of course, mm -hmm. and that's a contradiction. But at the same time, it's like, I still, in some ways that, that, that doesn't bother me though. I mean, it bothers me, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessitate stopping joining in the sense that like, it's always within capitalism, right? That we find little places of biopolitical resistance. Mm -hmm. And I think like, also, I think about um, 
the idea of taking claiming public space like that many people That's reclaiming beautiful. public right. space and i was thinking to myself today at wall street like this was not as big a deal to claim these streets as it was in 2011 in the fall when all of this started it's because there's a history a recent history now of claiming the streets that this for a related but different cause is possible but there's also i mean the contradiction though at least yesterday less so today um because it was more solely disobedient but even yesterday you know it was the result of a month-long negotiation with the nypd that had the march end up on frickin 11th avenue where there's nothing except parking lots yeah. right so that contradiction as well and i mean so there's both, I mean, kind of the practical, there's the practical issue of, you know, if there had been, you know, an attempt to resolve some of the contradictions for yesterday's march in terms of something like um, intellectual or like activist purity, then you're not going to get 400,000 people there. No, you're right. right? Why so, don't you so resolve is, contradictions? Well, you don't, and I don't I, think you have to. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying oh. you have to. Oh. You said it, you said it, you said it. You said I'm, it. I'm, 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 I'm arguing against saying we must resolve all these contradictions and discontinues, but I'm saying that, you know, I mean, and even, you know, in like the week before the event, there were plenty of, you know, uh, you know, there was, I mean, one piece in particular, and I'm forgetting the person's name who wrote it, but, you know, said that, well, we should kind of just be out on this march because of, you know, the potential like imbrications of it with corporate and it's not resistant enough and it's not meeting some, oh, you know, God. standard. And Sorry. obviously, it gets like, can yeah. get into like, I'm leftier than thou yeah, sort well, of thing. Yeah, that's things. what it boils down oh. to in and instances. So, but I mean, but, and, I, and that's why, like, you know, I read this piece like literally on Saturday and I went to this thing on Sunday and it was so interesting to think about it because, you know, Chakrabarty gives us a very, very complex and I thought very brilliant and moving, you know, theoretical apparatus for thinking about some of the tensions that yeah. that took place and were put into practice and manifested materially, more materially, because obviously thinking is material, um, uh, you know, on, in the streets of New York on Sunday. Well, I think that, okay, so my question about, like, what does it look like as a method and praxis, I was also um, thinking about a piece that I had read, which was triggered... Um, by my reading of this, and I wondered, you know, at least in terms of their their relationship in time, um, by the last name of the author is um, Sinha, and I believe that the way that she was framing it was, uh, it was I think it was the um, post-colonial or empire uh, historical formation or something, or social formation, I should say. Sure. And the co-imbrication, and the particular article was dealing with how um, Indian and, and British feminisms emerged during the struggle against empire in India. And the ways in which those histories are, and if we're using the words imbricated, co-imbricated, and that we can't extract the two. And so in many instances, I think that the way I was reading this piece was going back to the ways in which um, Although when we think about species, and maybe this is an answer to my own question, although we're, when we think about species, we have a tendency to erase differences that I believe are fundamental and instrumental to, mm -hmm. to alliances, to our ways of being, our subjectivities. Um, when we think about the co-imbrication of history and the ways in which we are formed as subjects, then we can start to think about the way all of these differences being tied together, but not necessarily being simultaneously erased. And so mm -hmm. perhaps like, you were bringing this up and I'm just maybe, I hope I don't sound repetitive, but you know, having these various contingents at the parade or parade, the, this resistance march was a message. Things can be the same a parade, thing. right? Resistance parade. I mean, there was, there was art. It was, it was a practice in, in many instances of, of artwork as well. Um, 
that this can be an opportunity in which we say, look at all of these various histories and subject formations that have occurred throughout history coming together for a particular purpose, which is to say, right, we unite under this solidary term of, you know, of, of wanting policy, some kind of change with regard to, you know, I say change with regard to climate change, but I'm not sure how to sure. Like, phrase it. Whatever. Um, to say, right, we can look at those differences, we can hold on to them, and we can take, and I think you're right, Rachel, thinking about this in terms of a banner, right? Under the banner of something. Um, a what? Heaven. A he heaven, for but example. Is, is the banner of species the best banner? It's probably but, not the best banner because I don't know if species does it because species to me sounds like an enlightenment term that, that suggests like this like unified, you know, person. It's weird. It's weird to say species. I it hear that, but I, I think banners are ephemeral. They only appear when mm. they appear and then they disappear. And it's like, but species Lord. is universal in all ways, right? Species persist. I don't think it has to though. So I think like in as much as we're taking the long run view, the deep history view that he talks about, yeah. Yeah. you talk about species, but I think precisely what he's saying is we don't only think of it as a species and species only means sort of like, you know, the human that talks as opposed to the bastard animal. If you think about species as some sort of like category from which all other categories are drawn. So I, long as that's, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say like the Audre Lorde idea, let, let different spark like a dialectic. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly what this is, and in Adorno, negative dialectic. In fact, that brings me to the last, the last uh, sure. few sentences. Sure. Before we get into that, can we talk about the species thing for a minute? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Because one of the things that, and I can't find the quote now, but um, he's talking about the way that you know, although we as critical theorists make it cast it very broadly right say that you know well we can't talk about the species because the species always implies some static enlightenment rational and self-interested individual white who's white and european and so on and so forth mm -hmm. right we, that's probably the general one of the general critiques well, we would make yeah. right but the, one of the things he does is he says you know in darwin or in the way that the species gets brought up you know by good science Right, species is actually something that's always mutating and always changing. Right, genes change, and there are mutations, and the mutations that can't predict over, that we can't predict over time. So that he won. I think one of the things that Chagall wants to argue is that we should, but again, both hold on to our suspicion of the universal or our suspicion of the species. But we also need to pay attention to the fact that the species, that species, in some certain registers, certainly not probably hegemonic you know, popular, even popular critical theory understandings, right? I think you're right. Imply mutation. Yeah, I think that you're right in the sense that what, where I was going with that would be the critique of how we think about species through this, like, through recourse to biology. Sure. Um, and to, to take on Darwin, you know, whom I appreciate, and to take on at least the ephemerality of species and not the universality of species. Yes. And I think if we can, because I love the term ephemeral, and I will always take that, I will always take the ephemeral um, over the universal. I will always take it as something that is finite, that we are here only, you know, only on a, you know, with, with recourse to, to geological time, we are like a blink. You know, if we're, if we're thinking back to, look, I don't want to deify um, Professor uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, but, uh, uh, you know, nevertheless, his Cosmos, the Cosmos series that showcases um, yeah. him as a narrator, demonstrates this. I mean, it was a beautiful, beautiful um, segment that I was watching the other day, actually, on climate change. And, um, and I believe that the ways in which that show constantly reflects on how small a time period, you know, civilization, like if we can quote civilization on the planet Earth, 
and it occupies at least in terms of, of universal time universal time um, to think about how ephemeral we really and truly are compared to other aspects of the things around us now I like the ways in which species operates when we think about the fact that we're co-imbricated with every other aspect of nature, which is why Marx is so important because Marx implicates us within nature, correct? I'm not a, you know, a definitely. scholar of Marx, but definitely like within the Grundrisse and others, he is implicating us within nature as a part of nature, right? Yep. And of course, using Marxism oftentimes, you know, suggests that we can dominate nature on some level, but you can also say the same of Locke and other horrible enlightenment thinkers but sure. um you know and so i as long as we're taking on the the ephemerality of the species that we have within you know we have at least in our moment an opportunity to either think about our longevity or to realize just how ephemeral life can be right given climate change um as as a as a problem but i think that's actually precisely how he is using species is understanding our engagement as humans on the earth as a blink of an eye uh -huh. in the longer in the broader scheme of things and understanding how far back um you know problems with the earth warming before global warming has you know started to take place and spread but has occurred as as a as a relatively new phenomenon but not an isolated one in other words he's saying hold up those of you who say that it's all capitalism in some sense you're being true anthropocentric why would it be just that this is part of a much longer process of humans fucking up the earth for and I, I mean there's that and then there's the fact that i mean as much as i want to say and i'm with you two on you know talking about something like the the ephemerality of the species or the ephemerality of some banner that we might unite under um i'd like to point out as a total aside that i don't think we actually have to get into but this also gets back to our discussion B that we had with Emily over the summer about the cloud and the universal oh God, and stuff yeah. like that. Um, but but imagine that. But but the yeah. point I want to make is that um, so Chakrabarty, you know, I think he wants us to think about the ephemerality or the impossibility of the universal of the species or something like that. But I think he really does want to hold on to the fact that there is something. Um, God, I, the only one that's come to mind is concrete, but that's the wrong word. But because for re many reasons, but you mean material again? Sh maybe? Maybe. No, but no? that's not it either. But that there is like an actual concrete universality to what he what we're talking about, right? So if we're we're reading, all fucked. Are we gonna fuck? Well, us we're we're um, so on page two hundred six. Um, <laughs> he talks about we can become geological agents only historically and collectively. That is, when we have reached mm -hmm. the numbers and invented technologies that are on a scale large enough to have an impact on the planet itself. To call ourselves geological agents is to attribute to us a force on the same scale as that released at other times when there has been a mass extinction of the species. So for him, species is not just something that's ephemeral. He's engaging with these literatures that want to argue for humanity as such as this you know, is this less ephemeral, more uh, dense or long, uh, everlasting or something, not everlasting, but more lasting sort of entity. Mm -hmm. So I'm inherently, because of the things I do and stuff I read, so suspicious of something like that. And he acknowledges that. He's like, you're, you know, it's right to be suspicious of talking about the species. Yes. And so this gets back to the end quote, which we cut Rachel off from talking about like a long time ago. So let's you get to Rachel cut. talking about the idea. The other I apologize. <laughs> oh my God. We've just invented a new word. Great. Oh, and I'm, I feel really freaking bad that I'm the person that uh -huh. inspired it to happen. Yeah. So Rachel, let um, me de-man cut you. Yes. 
Oh, that's kind. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Me deign to deal with <laughs> yes. you. Oh, my God. Well, okay, a couple of things. First of all, um, yeah, I'm going to get to Adorno in a second. Have no doubts. He does talk also about the anxiety that's provoked by this sort of like apocalyptic, sure. you know, zombie-like event that's going to happen when climate change ultimately kills the earth. And there's nothing that's not collective about that. And granted, climate change is felt differently in different countries where there's more pollution, where more natural resources have been extracted, right? In less industrialized countries, for sure. Right. But I think also he's trying to point to this idea that whereas, I mean, it's similar and distinct from something like nuclear winter. It's similar in that. But she does make the point to say. Yeah. He actually analogizes, yeah, in that it's all encompassing and we can't escape it. On the other hand, it's distinct because it's not by choice. I mean, it's not a direct action. Like, well, like dropping a nuclear bomb or something. You're right. Well, I mean, it's accumulated and it's over time. And there is this, you know, and I, look, I will take issue with this notion of being a geological agent. I just, you know, we'll come back to that sure. in a moment. But I want to tackle this idea, for instance, that, you know, this apocalyptic um, thing, although I suppose apocalyptic might not be the best word, but the end of days, as it were, that, that would be upon us would be something of a, you know, kind of a, how would, how would one describe it? Uh, there's a tipping point at which the climate is going to, you know, with the emission of, of greenhouse gases, a tipping point is going to be reached at which there's no turning back, right? The earth respires, right? The earth takes in um, the carbon dioxide that's emitted and respires oxygen, except we are producing carbon dioxide at greater levels, et cetera, et cetera. That's the scientific basis of Anthropocene, you know, climate change. But, you know, how is it that we are going to, and I also kind of like, want to make sure that we're not talking about weather patterns over climate, you know, climate being the long term sure, and weather patterns being the short term, Definitely. which I think is a lot of the, the, the mass misunderstanding of, well, it's, it it's was cold, cooler this it's summer, cooler than, than, usual. summer than usual in, yeah. you know, Colorado or something, but not getting the fact that climate change is something that is, you know, it takes centuries, right? Centuries that ultimately can't be undone yet with yet another century of trying to undo um, the amount of damage that we're doing. Now, this is where geological agency might come into play, is that thinking about oneself as being a part and parcel of some geological history as, as a part of nature, right? Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, with regard to how we think about that agency, I become skeptical because then at, to what extent then do we imbricate our agency within political structures that are thus inherently capitalistic, that favor certain kinds of, um, uh, that favor certain kinds of adversarial processes over others, that institutionalize, um, you know, already established money, you know, sources and, and revenues and ways of, of just of, of consuming and being that is inherently westernized um and you know so i suppose like although rachel i don't know if i'm directly speaking to what you were bringing up i you know i didn't get there yet well i feel well i fear right <laughs> i fear for the notion of like what a geological agency would look like within the structures that we have already committed ourselves to the reason i think it's good is because so often politics hates the long term. I mean, it's, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that often in mainstream media, when we hear about the Bush administration or other people, other climate change deniers talking about climate change, they talk about short term weather patterns. I mean, think about the Middle East crisis or any other crisis where it's about how are we going to acquiesce or how are we going to seize power tomorrow? Yes. You know, it's not it's never about the long term, right. whether we're talking about humans fighting or the weather. Yeah. 
but geological agents provides a certain temporal extension or, or long-term view that I think is really helpful. What I was gonna say actually goes back to this idea of what we were talking about before about this banner of um, the species and the idea of reconciling. And I know that's not what you were saying, but the idea that in activism there's some some necessity or some pressure to reconcile. Not the only act in activism, right? He's also dealing with it theoretically. Right. Yeah, very true, and theoretically. And he says, this is at the bottom of page 21, climate change is an unintended consequence of human actions and shows only through scientific analysis the effects of our actions as a species. Species may indeed be the name of a placeholder for an emergent new universal history, new universal history hmm. of humans that flashes up in the moment of danger <laughs> that is climate change. Hashtag Benny Mean. But we can never understand <laughs> this universal. It is not a Hegelian universal arising dialectically out of the movement of history or a universal of capital brought forth by the present crisis. Da 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 da. Yet climate change poses for us a question of a human collectivity in us, pointing a figure of the universal that escapes our capacity to experience the world. It is more like a universal that arises from a shared sense of a catastrophe. It calls for a global approach to politics without the myth of a global identity, without the myth of a global identity, for unlike a Hegelian universal, it cannot subsume particularities. We may provisionally call it a negative universal history. I so that's like Adorno which dressed he up and throws into the footnote. Which oh, is, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, which is brilliant. However, you know, we are taking simultaneously a kind of trust in an institution of science in order and I'm not yeah. I'm not gonna cast that's, doubt. No, Look, that's I true. love first of all, I'm I, I love science and I you know, I'll, I'll be the first to say it. But my cousin's first, a science. Uh, uh, my my cousin's a science, my brother's a science, so I, I have lots of sciences. Um I'm I'm very skeptical though of how um, you know, if we think that, uh, you know, the general populace is going to take science as the source of truth and yeah. knowledge, right? The extent to which we have to allow ourselves to lean on science um, yeah. and, and the intricacies of how scientific thought is imbricated within capitalism itself. Definitely. That it seems that within those statements that he is not taking into account that science is in itself an institution See, that is funded by and funneled through, at least in terms of funds by, capitalist enterprises. So it's always already an invested interest. I, I think like, he's right? aware of that. Though. I do. Yeah, think I did he's the plug, but I, but see, but if that's going to how you if, if that's going to bookend a chapter about climate change, article I, or article. Um, if that's going to book in an article about climate change, then we should at least address the nature of science as an institution that is inherently and structured by a kind of capitalist orientation. Which he's aware of in this piece. But, Maybe you have to look, I mean, in the, you know, in, in he, he's aware of it, I think, on a practical level, but he also, at a couple of different points, cites Latour's Politics of Nature yeah, to but, say that we can't go, you know, we can't have this naivete about science. I think he's aware of that. But it seems as though what... So Again, my fear... Okay. Yeah, explain your fear no, first. So the, only, the, the only fear that I have is, you know, you can, you can say, well... I, you know, I understand the following, but I'm going to bracket that off. He's not bracketing it, though. Well, it seems as though you can reference Latour's Politics of Nature, which talks about the collectivity, which talks about the co-invocation of science within that collectivity and how the institutions of capitalism operate, too. Um, but you can bracket that off, and that's what I feel like, and still suggest that science has this way of proving 
right? That there are certain, you know, fundamental elements of our of our actions that are having an effect that could produce a kind of catastrophe. And so I think the first step if we're going to be geological agents as it were is to think about is to think about ourselves in the sense that we have access or at least we need to be either skeptical or fully embracing of the ways in which science is producing this kind of knowledge, right? If in order to be geological agents, we have to understand the scientific undergirds of or the, the undergirding qualities of the ways in which Anthropocene climate change operates. If we don't, then I don't think that we can fully, if, if we call agency by its name, we cannot be fully acting as agents. And that's one claim that I believe Latour was making in politi Politics of Nature, you which is one, one must at least apprehend these intricacies. And if not, then agency is cut short. And so, you know, that's, that's my only, my fear. And so and I think this relates a, a lot to how, I don't mean to like talk so much, but I think this, this relates a lot to my fear of how people take at face value scientific thought Right? They take at face value this you know, so-called scientific evidence to the contrary of climate change. Right? Um, Wait, even say that last sentence again? They, they, they seem, well, there are plenty of people out there that seem to take at face value mm -hmm. the, the, the so-called scientific evidence that are, that's contrary to the consensus that's out there that climate change is an Anthropocene thing. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's as if it's this weird kind of thing that, um, you know, Emily, one of our previous guest co-hosts is actually writing about in one of her specialties is the ways in which we are able to talk about the skepticism, which is inherent with science to be skeptical of scientific thought, even mm -hmm. though there's a consensus. However, that, um, you know, all that being said is that mm -hmm. we too need to be slightly, you know, more aware of the ways in which scientific institutions operate if we are to be truly geological, as it were, geological universal agents. Also, though, within the gamut of um, people who are talking about climate change, I think he said he read something like just under a thousand articles himself, like 900. No, no, no. He's citing someone who did like a yeah. meta study. Of, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So somebody who did like a meta analysis. Nevertheless, within that analysis, I would presume that people scrutinize, that the author scrutinizes the sources from which these articles come. I mean, maybe that's not true. Maybe I'm granting too oh, much no. credence. Oh, no, not even like source, right? Not even source data so much as just the ways in which we have, and I think this could be like an automatic kind of critique of Enlightenment West, is that we have a natural recourse to the ways in which we, you know, we, we verify, that's not even the word, how we accept science, like scientific thought, uh, just as yes. truth, when we hear something as truth. Now, this is not something that I would suggest we go out and then thus question, you know, climate change because we ought to be skeptical of all scientific knowledge, mm -hmm. but rather to say the ways in which we are going to accept these institutions need to be regularly questioned and moving forward. And I think that that's an interesting point because it again brings us back to this issue <clears throat> of what contradictions or what tensions do we have to hold to, right? Yeah. Because we all want to hold to, you know, being skeptical of the politics and epistemic practices and privileges of those producing so-called scientific knowledge. At the same time, I think the three of us all want to say, you know, climate change, anthropogenic climate change is happening and is yes. real and is a catastrophe, right? So in some ways, I think that becomes 
becomes another tension that we have that is difficult to hold, but that is important to hold. But I think one way of doing that also is be is moving beyond the disciplines. And I think Foucault mm -hmm. would agree, like historicizing science. Right. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's Foucault's project. And I think in some ways it's actually Chakrabarty's project, too, in the sense that he's bringing in history and explicitly says we have to move beyond the disciplines. This isn't about a specific discipline. Especially because, in, you know, so the piece opens, the first thesis of the four theses <laughs> on uh, climate of history, um, as he says, that for, you know, literally hundreds of years, historians or history as a discipline has separated um, human history and natural history. Right. And that, you know, that's probably been a problem forever, but that's especially a problem in the face of climate change. So I'd agree with you, Rachel, that that's an important thing and a thing that he's doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at least to the extent that we're questioning the ways in which moving forward institutions are imbricated with, you know, and how we imbricate ourselves with the institutions of science, as well as the institutions that go about demonstrating our effects in the world, right? And that that's going to affect our, our, our capacities as agents. So, I mean, one other thing that I think we wanted to discuss was the implications of this piece for political theory as such, or for canonical um, political theorists. And so, I mean, we've already briefly mentioned the potential, I mean, interesting things this does with Marx in terms of Marx on species being, or, you know, his analysis of Marx in provincializing Europe, Marx's two histories of capital, uh, or the two histories of two histories of capital um, on Marx and provincializing Europe. So I mean, that's one particular direction. But what else were you all thinking in terms of kind of the implications of this piece for political theory? Well, it's interesting, his theory of, you know, I mean, talking about the Anthropocene, that the human is sort of the direct driver, at least in more recent history of climate change. It's interesting, because that simultaneously puts humans as the focus, while Paradoxically, this idea of the species turns humans into the equivalent of every other species. Sure. We're a species. We're dogs. We're cats. We're Homo sapiens. Shouldn't be paradoxical. I think it's great. <laughs> but it's paradoxical given dominant modes. Oh, of right, given right. Dominant oh, modes oh, of oh, yeah. Okay. And that it's moving in different directions, right? You have the centering of the human and his conception of who started climate or who's the focus of climate change, and then you also have the idea of. Yet, at the same time, we're decentering humans by making them but a species, but one kind of species. And so I think um, I think that that's I think that that's really interesting because it really troubles, I mean, a lot of the political canon, right? Aristotle, what makes humans different? Logos, the ability to speak. So what happens if we're just but a species equivalent to the others? It's humbling. I'm into it. Yeah, I am too. And I mean, the reason thing is interesting because this is one of the instances where he is critical of science or the scientific consensus because he points to you know a number of different scientific writers on climate change who point to you know it's human ingenuity or it's human thought or human innovativeness or human creativity and some more explicitly human reason that gets us out of this crisis right and he says that you know we also need to be suspicious of appeals to reason as the thing which is going to take us out of this crisis but right. I think is consistent, and I loved the way that you put it, Rachel, is a move that both centers the human at the same time as it decenters the human. And I think that that's one of the things that he's doing. I think that's a really mm -hmm. important thing. And it does upset so much of the Western political theory canon, right? So, I mean, you know, there, if it's not already written, and if you know of a book that's written this, I would like to read it. But, I mean, you know, there's books to be written about, you know, so we read in, you know, a critique in, of what how the social contract 
you know, tracing through different social contract theorists how they make the human distinctive. Or we could do it for any, you know, set of the political theory canons. What separates humans from animals in a way that prioritizes humans so that they're always already more complex or more superior or whatever to these other animals that are not human. And even thinking about something like the state of nature. For Hobbes, the state of nature, and correct me if I'm wrong, is not about, you know, I mean, there's a wolf in there somewhere, but it's not in general about like, you know, a storm killing you. It's about other humans mm -hmm, that are yeah. that are greedy, trying to get what you have and trying to preserve the self in that situation. But absent from that is this whole notion of the earth itself nature. being part of the state of the nature. Agency of, well, that's the interesting yeah. thing, that nature is absent from the state of nature. And, and, and most of the states of nature. I mean, Locke's a tiny bit interested, oh, but mean, not in a good way. You know, Definitely well, we can dominate in, in, by, in, yeah. in an appropriative right, way. Right, we, we appropriate nature for our own purposes. Locke. Own for capitalism. Vomit. Go read Udemy down. Yeah, seriously. I had a dream about Empire and liberalism. <laughs> um, Haven't we all? I have a dream Probably. about Latour every other night. That's so. what I figured. Um, well, I wanted to bring up the fact that you were, you know, just speaking about reason and Latour. Okay, Latour. <laughs> who doesn't love reason? Um, but Latour in his recent book, uh, you know. I just want to point like, out that like two minutes before we started recording, B was like, I don't know, how am I going to be able to work in a reference to Latour's <laughs> new book? And I told him he wouldn't have any problems, <laughs> and here's evidence of that. And here it is. Please continue, B. Um, there's a section in the first, you know, couple of chapters in which he's um, attempting to break down this notion that reason is like purely instrumental, and that reason is only intelligible through the networks and institutions in which reason is, at least on some level, utilized. So it's not a, in, in the ways in which that we've always thought about reason, it's somehow a universal thing that is always possessed. But rather, um, reason is something that is situated, that is utilized within certain kinds of networks and institutions. It's imbricated within those networks and institutions and thus has to be a source size as such. So he's always, I think in a previous work, um, Pandora's Hope, he says, you know, we need to do more historicizing. And I think, you know, to that extent, um, Rachel, I would agree is that we need to historicize science. We need to put it, we need to put scientific reason, scientific knowledge and the method within an historical frame. But how that history looks, what that history, um, you know, ultimately, you know, does it have a genealogical aspect to it would be, you know, a, a central question in methodology. Mm hmm. So. I'm actually interesting. I think, you know, if we're defining what does this do for political theory, if we're defining political theory in a really in terms of the canon, it's kind of clear how that's troubled. But if we think about something like ecofeminism, mm -hmm. it actually works quite well together. Ecofeminism being the idea that fill me in if I skip things, but that we're part of a larger ecosystem and that um, you know, you can't stop at the homo sapien. You have to kind of continue beyond that in terms mm -hmm. of thinking about the implicatedness of different systems of oppression. I mean, it's also a matter of, you know, we're going to talk about expanding, you know, what counts as political theory, right? This work speaks, you know, very implicitly, right? He could have made it explicit. He could not have whatever, um, you know, to, to things like Jane Bennett and, right. and her work on vital materialism or to someone like Haraway and like Companion Species Manifesto or even some of her earlier work as well that, you know, is, is in a lot of ways, it's about, you know, deprivileging the ontological and epistemic and agentic, like all these ways that we privilege the human, 
right? Which again is gets back to the paradox or not paradox of what this particular text by Chakrabarti is doing, and that is centering the humans as geological agents, centering humans as species as a way to decenter their privilege. Well, we or can something also like, that. like Jasper Poir wrote. Um, Let's just throw in all the well, cool yeah, theory like all that the we cool like. Theory people, go, like go, I'd go. rather I'd rather be a cyborg than a goddess. Yeah, definitely. Me too. And I Wouldn't would too. All? Would I? I don't know. I would rather be a cyborg well, than a goddess. That's on the list or maybe for a us cyborg, to talk about. Maybe a cyborgian goddess. You already are. You okay. are you always are. already <laughs> a cyborgian goddess. goddess. Love it. Um, is that a place to end? I think, these I think, cyborgian I think we goddess might have to induce an awkward silence All right. and call it an end. Okay. Right. Well, we'll be back with uh, some advice questions. Come on. Come on. Species' favorite segment is now my Tumblr friend from Canada. Yay! Here we go. Shiny advice! I love it. We have two great questions. <laughs> so this first question is from Regan in British Columbia. I'm guessing this person is using a pseudonym that's fake. Mm -hmm. uh, their question is, how do I ask out the cute boy in the library? I can Quite tell simple you, and straightforward. I can tell you, Regan. Um, sounds like a name from a Shakespeare play that I personally love, King Lear, in which uh, exactly I exactly why I think someone made up this mm -hmm, question. Which and I, sent I, it. I, I, I know some real life Regan. I, I yeah, would like too, to actually. quote. Um, I would like to quote uh, King Lear, Ooh, if I may. Please, from heart, um, move yes, over. Um, approach this person and say, "I love you more than words can wield the matter." Oh. oh. Mm, is that not poetic and beautiful? Just That's ask wonderful. the person out. You know what? I am I am totally But you want to make sure you do it in a non-creepy way. So right, right. I personally am a what fan of Are you reading Gilgamesh or Beowulf? <laughs> <laughs> well, generally speaking, that's only if they have a gigantic freaking yeah, book. In yeah, front exactly. Of Which, let's be honest, half the people at the school are English PhDs. Right. Well, I mean, you know, ask them what they're reading. You know, it's a, you're at a library, so it's it's a typical I mean, question. It's if not you're feeling too creepy, really lame, you can ask if they have a pen you can borrow. See, I th I think like, I'm but, think I'm with B. Like, to engage them about what they're reading. Yeah. And either you know, and that's an easy out, like way to be like, oh, I loved that book, or a, I loved that thing that this person wrote about this book let's have a coffee and talk yes, about sorry. it oh i hear there's a play about that play well, <laughs> you know, well the other thing is that you if you're in a library obviously you're separated oftentimes by seats and tables etc gender and genders and it's always so why don't you walk <laughs> over to the person sit it's like is this seat taken for example uh... really lame i know <laughs> But you'll be surprised how lame -o kinds of moves end up being endearing. Is this seat taken? Oh, yeah, what do you do like, then? Like, can I, fan can your can face? Can I sit here? I'm sorry. Oh, is this seat? I have the vape. It's so hot <laughs> in here. Um, but yeah, I think that on some level, like, just approaching the person, sitting down, asking them if you could join them, and, you know, or sitting next to them, right? Should we do a role play? I would love to do this. Who's who? I'll be the guy. Okay. Hey, you're the cute boy in the library. <laughs> Can I do? Can I do it? Or do you sure. Do There's like a visual going well, on. I'm gonna. I'll um, figure out a role to play. All right. So it's like. <laughs> eh? Eh? So so let's let's just say your bag is in the seat that I want to occupy. Right. What's what's 
cute boy Rachel reading? Uh, cute boy Rachel is reading um, Judith Phil- Butler's Gender Trouble. Yeah. Perfect. Right. Right. Um, hi. Oh, I'm sorry. Is is that your bag? Is it? Oh, uh, no. Someone left it there, actually. Oh, do you think that I could, like, just take it off and, like, just sit here? Is that cool? Uh, yeah. For what? Um, well, I'm actually reading uh, Judith Butler's Undoing Gender. It's just, it's a part of a research project of mine. Oh, which project? Um, well, I'm interested in investigating the material ways. Hey, that wait, who's moved my bag? That was not see, planned. You see what happened? So maybe I we might not the be connection. the best people I, to answer this question. I, I interrupted the question and the interaction, but the connection but was there. Beautiful was really it was happening. in the yeah, air. I felt a connection to be Yeah, see? All right, so Regan and BC, we solved your problem. Maybe we should do our closing ditty. What will the ditty be comprised of? <laughs> First, before we do that, uh, <laughs> goodbye, everyone. Yeah. We'll be back Thank you. in two more weeks, and we're going to be talking about Heidegger's book on Olderlin, which was a request. And I should say that the request we talk about Chakrabarty came from my friend Itai Orr, who just started an American Studies PhD program at Yale. Itai so Orr. good luck, Itai. I hope everything is going Best well. Thank you for the suggestion to read some Chakrabarty. Um, so remember that you should always email us, alwaysreadypodcast at gmail.com, and visit our website and subscribe to us on iTunes or some other RSS conglomerator feed thing. And uh, with that, there's going to be a lovely song from B and Rachel to take us out. Where have all the cowboys gone? It's been one week since you looked at me. podcast.wordpress.com email us text you link us discuss and other feedback always already podcast at gmail.com subscribe to us on itunes and subscribe to our rss feed thank you to me and to my friend jordan cass for the episode the music of this episode bye